Hello and welcome to Forgotten Sitcoms. Today we are talking about our most recent entry into the series, When the Whistle Blows. Tick-tock alarm clock, I'm gonna be late. Porridge toast, kids can't let me speak it. Factory floor, what a chore, another week's craft. And 50 times a day I hear... When the Whistle Blows ran for only two years, in 2006 and 2007, but in that time managed to churn out three series and a Christmas special. And churn out is the operative term here, because even just 15 years later, the show is primarily remembered as the last gasp of an outdated form of sitcom, a broad, lowest common denominator style of comedy that managed to hit every stereotype in the book. Oh, be fair, Ray, she wasn't that bad. We all loved her milky puddings. Not when they dragged in the mash, we didn't. <laughs> when the Whistle Blows was set in a factory in Wigan, with the bulk of the plots revolving around Rita, a typical working-class woman struggling as a single parent and always unlucky in love. She's surrounded by a cast of weak, one-dimensional characters that seem to be competing as to who can be the most stupid. And the show also seems desperate to crowbar in as many catchphrases as possible. It leans on jokes that are at best crude and lazy, but sometimes wander straight into outright offensive. May I present Gobbler and Kimberly with some traditional Japanese entertainment? <laughs> Despite the continued success of the show with audiences, it was clear that there was no place for When the Whistle Blows in a 21st century world. And bear in mind this came just a few years after The Office had changed the concept of the workplace sitcom forever. This was just out of date. But even today, the show manages to maintain something of a cult following, and I've seen people attempt to justify it by saying it was an ironic pastiche of old sitcom traits. But if that's what it was, then they hit it very well. And it certainly wasn't how it was received by the general public, who frankly lapped it up. And perhaps I should have learned by now to not be surprised by what people find funny, but When the Whistle Blows was a big hit in its time. It had regular viewers of 6 to 7 million, and this is at a time when the BBC was struggling with that continued fracturing of the television landscape. And that probably explains why they stuck with it, despite excoriating attacks from the reviewers. This was populist nonsense at its peak. And you know, maybe there is something to be said for that. It has its place. The show was originally trailed as a vehicle for Lisa Tarbuck, who made her name in watching back in the 80s. Well, I suppose her dad made her name, but uh, you know what I mean. Uh, she did become better known as a presenter in the 90s, but then had later success in acting as the titular lead in Linda Green, which was well-received, but short-lived. And it would be a further 10 years after this show before she found herself on another successful sitcom when she started playing Anne Hathaway in Upstart Crow. The BBC seemingly had faith in her pulling power. She was the only well-known cast member, but they did bring in some celebrity cameos, such as Keith Chegwin, who we've already talked about in this Forgotten Sitcom series when he appeared in The Whackers. Although he hadn't been an actor for some years by then, I mean, that seems like a superb casting decision compared to what is probably the lowest moment of the show, when Chris Martin out of Coldplay turns up for no reason, can't act, and then sings a song that isn't even funny. I'm saying that's the lowest moment, but there have been quite a few. It's really quite amazing how low the show would sink in an attempt to stay relevant. The rest of the regular cast was made up of relative unknowns, although Sarah Moyle had previously appeared in Get Well Soon, another entry in our Forgotten Sitcom series. But the breakout star of the show, and I really can't put this off anymore, was Andy Millman. 
My ears are burning. Millman played Ray Stokes, the manager and authority figure in the factory, the characterization of whom is basically, ooh, silly wig and funny glasses. That's about it. Oh, he does make funny squeaking noises. Yeah, comedy gold. Not to mention basically a lift of the character in Fast Show, which was already making fun of this kind of character. So, like I say, it was so far out of date, even when it was made, that now it just looks ridiculous. And Millman, you know, he's hardly the next Olivier, but he gurned gamefully and found himself becoming an overnight star. And this is really where the story gets interesting, but also a little bit confusing and vague. There's a lot of rumours about Millman, but one thing we know for sure is that he was also the writer of When the Whistle Blows. Now, legend has it that Millman was an out-of-work actor, slumming it by doing extra work on TV and films, and, you know, I don't judge him for that, you've got to pay the rent. And there is definitely evidence of him appearing in the background of things. So, we can assume that's true. But the legend also has it that he wrote a pilot script for When the Whistle Blows and managed to slip it to Patrick Stewart while doing extra work. There's just no way that's true. Firstly, why give it to Patrick Stewart? He's not got any direct connections with the BBC who produced the show or really known for comedy particularly. Secondly, they don't let extras talk to the talent. They certainly don't let them pitch ideas to them. The whole thing is just completely unrealistic and I think it's just a fanciful tale made up to try and sell this story that Millman was an extra who made good. It's that classic rags to riches story. And it's obviously based in some truth. The show was produced for the BBC by Picard Productions, which is obviously Patrick Stewart's company. So I think that's why his name has been brought into this. But I doubt that he had anything to do with that process on a day-to-day basis. The actual producers of the show were Ian Morris and Damon Beasley, who were clearly slumming it here before they later went on to create The Inbetweeners, a much more grounded and modern comedy that we have looked at on the British Sitcom History Podcast. So go and check that episode out if you haven't already. But let's get back to Millman. Like I say, when he first shot to stardom, there seemed like there was a deliberate push to sell him as this nobody who had won the lottery, and yeah, okay, there's some truth to it. Certainly, he wasn't a well-known actor, but there is some evidence that shows that he had done Panto with Les Dennis, so that's certainly a, a solid bit of professional work there, and maybe he was more of a stage actor and just hadn't broke into television, so not that well known to the general public. And that panto history would certainly explain his acting style, very broad, very over the top. And this definitely was his first writing credit. It didn't come through radio sketch comedy or anything like that, like so many others. He just seems to have come out of nowhere as a writer. But perhaps more tellingly, it's also his last writing credit. Nevertheless, Millman clearly had some sort of blackmail material on someone high up at the BBC because he managed to not only get his script produced, but also land a major role in it. And that was a role that had been earmarked for Sean Williamson, interestingly. That's Barry off of EastEnders to you and me. And you can see how that would have been a great fit for the character. I think he would have brought much more of a sort of sad, pathetic, loser man kind of vibe to it. And I think that's what the character needs, a bit more sympathy. You never really feel sorry for him. And I think Barry off of EastEnders would have done that. Are you having a laugh? (laughs) You having a laugh? But however Millman played it, it obviously worked for someone. I mean, we're only 15 years on now, but already that show is only really remembered for that character of Ray Stokes. And then the ensuing career of Andy Millman, brief though it was, he became a little bit of a living embodiment of that danger of having your 15 minutes of fame. And I think really the main problem for Andy Millman was that he tried to be himself. He was known as this ridiculous comedy character, but then he went out and did all that celebrity nonsense as Andy Millman, 
and it turned out that he was a very dour, humorless, miserable man. He got a reputation for being difficult to work with, both in the fact that he didn't really socialise with his fellow actors. I've never heard anyone in all the interviews ever say anything particularly nice about him, and he was always pushing back against the producers. You know, he was the writer, fair enough, but maybe because he was this breakout star, he felt like he had a bit more power than he actually did. You know, ultimately, you know, it's the money men who make those decisions. And this did spread to his other work as well. There was reports of him getting into a physical altercation on set with Warwick Davis, of all people. And maybe anger management issues in general, because he also reportedly assaulted a child with Down syndrome in a restaurant. And frankly, the fact that he was even able to ride that out without losing his job gives you some idea of just how popular he was at one point. I mean, he was even nominated for Best Comedy Performance at the BAFTAs, despite this reputation. It was a different time. But not surprisingly, this did all have to come to a head eventually, and at the height of his arrogance, Millman quit the show and sacked his agent. And uh, bear in mind that this was the agent that must have negotiated the contract with the BBC, a complete unknown with uh, with a script and a, a major role in it. There's no way Millman has arranged that. That agent must have had some serious connections. But Millman was confident that he could walk into other roles. And here's the other major problem for Andy Millman's career. He's not a very good actor. Everything I've ever seen him in is this very broad, over-the-top, basically relying on pulling faces, making stupid noises. Yeah, there's a place for that. But not if you're also a, an arrogant dickhead that no one wants to work with. And the final ignominy, of course, as it was for so many, was Celebrity Big Brother. Millman appeared for several days before basically having a breakdown and walking out. And this miserable and clearly depressed person that showed up in the house was so at odds with the public idea of his cheeky comedy character that the fickle audience no longer had the time or energy for him. Millman slipped back into obscurity as quickly as he had arrived and has proven very reluctant to pursue his career any further. And so ends the story of When the Whistle Blows. It's uh, one of tragedy and the dangers of getting what you wish for. But one thing we can all agree on is that the show itself just wasn't very funny. <laughs>